welcome everybody to episode 51 of the Culture Cast. I'm joined by a very special guest, Colin Cernelia. Colin, welcome to the Culture Cast. Thank you so much for having me. And I actually really like that number 51. That was one of my favorite Yankee players growing up, Bernie Williams. That was his number. Amazing. So, cool. so this is, that is actually super cool. Nice. So <laughs> Colin, you are president and CEO of Talent 409 Leadership Academy. So yes. tell us, what do you do? <laughs> Great question. It's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so funny because, so obviously you and I, we've connected in the past and even in the brief time since we last spoke, there's been so much that's happened, both in my personal life and in my business life. And one of the uh, more interesting pivots, if you will, is that my Leadership Academy now focuses more on women's sports than it did in the past. So previously I'd been working with high school level student athletes, coaches, some at the collegiate level too. So basically amateur level right. uh, athletes. And uh, I had been for a long time contemplating making some type of pivot towards women's sports and because I had, had a lot of conversations on my own podcast with people like yourself who are just mm -hmm. super interesting people. They are empowering women in so many different ways. And then I, <laughs> the craziest things in, in life happened. Kobe Bryant yes. and his daughter Gigi passed away on this past Sunday. Devastating. And it was, it was. And Kobe was one of the two most influential athletes of my childhood. Him and Alex Rodriguez was the other. Wow. When he passed away, it really hit me hard because he was in Kobe's got a complicated legacy. Like I'm not going to debate that yeah. at all, but yeah. one of the great things that he was doing in life after basketball was enabling women to get more involved specifically in basketball, but empowering them, I, I guess is probably the better word to get more involved in basketball and, and bring that game up. He was a big supporter of the WNBA right. here in the States. And when that happened, between Sunday night and Monday morning, <laughs> this is this is only Thursday, so this has been a, <laughs> this is really a big week. Pivot, but <laughs> I had very long talks with my wife about should I just do it? Like, is this is this the final sign? Because I had been trending that way for a long time, and I think that was the push I needed to venture into kind of scary territory for me. I'm I'm a male, so for me to enter into a world where I'm trying to lift up other women. I don't think it's something that you necessarily see all the time, but I've definitely made a lot of really great connections again, like yourself. And I think that it's going to be a lot of fun going into this niche, if you will, and yeah. focusing specific on women at the high school and collegiate level. So long story short, I work with <laughs> women at the high school and collegiate level to empower them in sports primarily. That is what the brand stands for. Yeah. And I think that's an incredible cause. And even when I was on your podcast, Dynamic Leaders, I felt I felt that, right? Just the opportunity to have have a voice and talk about my past experiences. Like it was it was really interesting. So what exactly if you're in a coaching session with somebody, what does that mm -hmm. look like? Sure. It's going to look a little bit different depending on the specific circumstances, but in general there are essentially two types of coaching that's going to go on, coaching and training, however you want to look at it. The first is going to be more one-on-one, -on -one, and that usually is a little bit more focused on leadership development. So 
understanding what your specific goals are as a leader, how you want to lead the team that you're leading, what your situation is, and just really applying that more on an individual basis than anything else. Okay. Then the second type of coaching and training is more of that team setting. So culture building, team bonding, where we take a lot of, a lot of times it's work that we're taking from the head coach of a team, for example, their vision and implementing it on a larger scale. Because what we've found is the head, head coaches would love to spend more time on the culture piece and on the development piece in general, but their duties call for them to spend more time with X's and O's and spend more time recruiting and spend more time in the administrative task of what they do. Right. And there's only so many hours in a day. So it's really cool that coaches empower me to come and speak to teams in large team settings or speak to their leaders in one-on-one settings and, and basically supplement me for right. the work that they want to do, but they don't have the time to do it. It's so interesting. And, you know, I, I came across something on your website and you said you work with the mind, right? You said, you know, coaches and I guess trainers will work with the muscles, but the mind of the individual athlete. So you kind of develop that one-on-one and then you move that into a team setting. So where do you think that accountability to be a better leader really starts? That accountability honestly starts with the individual. And it's, it's really simple when you break it down that way, because think about any type of situation, whether it's in athletics or it's a more corporate type setting, the CEO, the head coach tabs you as a leader and you don't want anything to do with that type of responsibility. Are you going to grow into the type of leader that's needed for your team? Probably not. Right. You may come to find that you like it, but it has to be something that you want to do. So ultimately that responsibility starts with that person. And a lot of times it's, unfortunately it's for some of the wrong reasons. They want that fame, they want that title, but more often than not, the people that truly seek out leadership opportunities and like want to actually work on it they're the ones that understand that it's a little bit more than just bossing people around and having that flashy title or whatever you may have for it right right so when you're when you're in a team setting and you know you're trying to bring everybody together collectively towards the kind of a common mission you know what what on a daily basis does that individual have to do to really represent that team culture really well? Sure, so there's, I think there's two things. The first thing is, so if you're in that team setting, it's helping the entirety of the team understand what their role is. Mm-hmm. So think about any type of team setting, you're going to have leaders, you're going to have followers, if that's how you just simply break it down. But each person plays an individual role on the team and helping them understand what that role is and connecting it to the larger purpose of the team. I think that's the first step to cultivating the type of environment where it's positive, people are inclusive, they're helping each other versus the backstabbing, complaining, blaming that type of game that you sometimes see. The other part of it builds on the purpose. So it's one thing to In athletics, we talk a lot about wins and losses. So it's one thing to want to win all the time, but it's another thing to, for example, 
represent your community. It's another thing to represent a cause that you strongly believe in. And a lot of times, and, and this is, honestly, I didn't come up with this, <laughs> but this is something I, I borrowed from Google. Amazing. Who, yeah. One, one, of the, one of the leading companies, obviously, and they do a lot of things really well. And one of the things that they do well is that they connect to something that's larger than just their everyday working responsibilities. They also empower their employees. It's called the 80-20 rule, where 80% of their time is spent on the responsibilities that are in their job description and that they're quote unquote getting paid for. Whereas the other 20% are spent on creative ventures that could, could or could not have anything to do with Google. Some of the things that I've read have come of that is Gmail, for example. Like Gmail came from this 80-20 rule. There's been people in Google that have gone on to start their own companies and just do really cool things. So being able to connect to something bigger than the daily grind, because I think that's what really bogs people down, whether you're in athletics, whether you're in corporate, like if you have a sales goal and that's the only thing that you're focused on, it can get pretty boring. It can get pretty hard to get motivated every single day. But right. if you're trying to hit that sales goal because you're trying to raise money for your cousin that may be sick, and, and that's an extreme example, obviously, mm -hmm. but that's something that can connect you a little bit more and make, make you feel more alive. And it doesn't necessarily connect you to the business per se, but there are things with the business or with your team that you can also do like I mentioned earlier, just represent your community in a really positive way. For sure. I love that. And, you know, Daniel Pink talks about that in Drive, right? He talks about yes. mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And it a huge part of motivation is feeling like you are working for something larger than yourself. So sure. being able to create kind of a culture like that, I think, is is super important. So tell me a little bit about what makes a dynamic leader. <laughs> so at Talent 409, which I'm still going to go with that for shorthand instead of <laughs> saying the, <laughs> the full leadership academy, yeah. <laughs> we've identified dynamic leaders to have seven distinct pillars. Right. What's really interesting about that, so I won't go into detail about all seven because we just don't have enough time for that today, but what's really interesting about the seven pillars in general is that you don't need to be an expert at all seven. So like two of the pillars, one is communication and the other is emotional intelligence. Maybe you are an A on emotional intelligence, which is the one that I argue that you need to be an A on more than any of the other seven. Totally agree with you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> say you're an A on emotional intelligence and only a C on communication. That doesn't mean that you're a bad communicator. It just means that you have an area of weakness and an area to improve. And it also doesn't mean that you're not a dynamic leader. We've already identified that one of those seven pillars you're really good at. Right. So dynamic leaders aren't A's, aren't 100% good at every single pillar, but more often than not, they score, like if we were to put some type of scorecard to it, they would score really high in at least one, probably two or three of those areas, and then maybe higher than average in a couple areas, and then there might be a couple areas where there's a lot of room for improvement. So dynamic leaders are really just like anyone else. They are people who are growing and developing. They just may be a little bit further along than some other people. Plus, 
they want to take on the seriousness of leading other people. Right. And that's really what's at the core of it is that when you take a leadership position, you are now responsible for people. You're not responsible for a product that doesn't have mm -hmm. feelings and that can't talk back to you and doesn't have a life outside of work. You are responsible for people. And that's a really important distinction to make because for some people that can be a burden and they don't want that responsibility. And that's totally cool. Again, the world needs followers, company, companies need followers, teams need followers. So we just want to be able to identify who the leaders are versus who they aren't. And that's what helps us. Like when we go into some type of consultative setting, we say, look it, not everybody on your team is going to be a leader. So let's figure out which ones have the capacity to do it and let's help coach them up. I love that. I love that. Responsible for people. Oh my gosh. It's great. Yes. <laughs> so let's dig into communication a little bit. So be, okay. you know, that being one of the seven pillars, what does great communication, let's say maybe, I mean, you could relate it to a team setting or, you know, in an office or on, you know, a sports team. What does great communication look like? Sure. I, a lot of times attribute great communication to former United States president, Franklin Roosevelt. And I'll tell that story here in just a minute, but more simply great communication is concise. It's direct. It's even practical. Okay. It has to be something that's easily understood. And <laughs> I hate the phrase, like talk to me like I'm a third grader so that <laughs> I can understand it. But in, in a way that's, that's almost what you're trying to aim for right. when, especially when you're trying to communicate with a large mass of people. And that's why I really like that FDR example, because in the United States in the 1930s, there was the great depression. And one of the things that FDR did to communicate with the nation was he started fireside chats, which are a really popular thing. It was must listen to radio. Like you've heard of must see TV. Well, they didn't have TV back then. That was, <laughs> that was the medium to communicate. The reason that it caught fire and it was so popular was not because Americans, I mean, Americans wanted to understand what was going on, but that was the point they could understand what was going on because of the way that FDR spoke to them. Right. FDR had the intuition to understand that he was going to be speaking with people of all different classes. So rich, middle-class, poor people of all different races, people that, especially back then when a lot of people were coming over from Europe. So we had a lot of immigrants in the country, people that probably didn't have that strong of English. So, if he was going to get his message across clearly and concisely, then he needed to speak almost like he was talking to a third grader, very small words, very short, direct to the point. And that was the approach he took must listen to radio. And I think it's one of the greatest examples of how to communicate. You hear about these people all the time that say they're great communicators and all they do is talk and they add all these big words and you're like, what, what are you even talking about? Like it almost becomes boring <laughs> to yeah. a certain extent. Right. And, and I think that if, if we practiced a little bit more like FDR did, then our message would get across a little bit easier. Totally right. Keep it concise, keep it clear, right. Set the expectations. So mm -hmm. what if you're in a situation, I mean, this can happen, you know, I've experienced this on when I played volleyball, you know, sometimes conversations can get a little heated. Um, but, you know, in the workplace in particular, you know, how do you have a difficult conversation? Yes, 
love difficult conversations. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite keynotes that I've ever gotten to deliver. So there's a couple different aspects to difficult conversations. The first is that while it may be difficult for you to have the conversation, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be difficult for the person who receives the information. So interesting. It's, it's, it's the context of what you're trying to talk about, right? Like if you're going to fire somebody, obviously that's probably a difficult conversation yes. for both <laughs> of you to have. But if you are giving some type of very critical feedback from a top performer, let's say, who's not used to getting that type of feedback, the conversation could go one of two ways. They could be super receptive to it and say, thank you for being honest and, and letting me know as difficult as that was that I'm doing something wrong, now I can fix it. Or they might be combative and, and they might be somebody that will just shake their head and then walk out of that meeting and mumble under their breath how dumb you are and <laughs> you don't know what you're doing but i think the larger point of difficult conversations is that you need to have them because if you don't then a situation lingers and what we found and i did this just from a lot of my personal experience both in my profession but also just in my personal life is that when i ignored a situation it just hung around forever. It was like a slow bleeding death. That's what I always compare it to. Whereas if I just had the conversation, there's a finality to it. And a lot of times it does simply just end. Like the conversation's over, you've had it, you moved on. Right. Sometimes you're able to even build on it. And that's that was an important aspect. The last time I delivered this keynote, I was speaking with college students and I made sure to be specific when I said that when you have a difficult conversation, if you're in the position of leadership, you want to make sure that you are empowering the person that you are having the conversation with to be able to respond to you. Right. And it doesn't need to be right away. It can, it can be right away in that direct context where you're maybe face to face or you're on the phone. It can be three days from then. It could be three weeks from them, but you want to make sure that they leave that conversation understanding that you're not, you're not delivering an ultimatum, right? You, you are trying to open up a conversation. You are trying to communicate, like yeah, you just said, right. with them. You don't want them to think that just because they had a difficult conversation with you that you can't come back with feedback because maybe there's a reason like that you're doing something and, and again, it, it will just for the sake of this conversation, you're doing it quote unquote wrong, but maybe in your mind, you don't think it's wrong or you don't understand that it's wrong. So you, you want a little bit more information. If you don't communicate that to that person <laughs> and you keep making those same mistakes, then in the corporate world, you're just going to get fired. Right. 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 You almost, so, you almost do somebody a disservice by not having that conversation. Right. Right. So from a, a leadership standpoint, that's exactly right. You don't want to do the disservice, but from right. the person who's on the receiving end of it, that's, that's why as the leader, you want to make sure that you are keeping it an open dialogue and not not making it an ultimatum like that's the worst thing you can do from a difficult conversation is say hey this is difficult for me you're doing this wrong or we can't be doing that and that's the end of the story like right. maybe sometimes in severe cases it needs to be that black and white but i think most times you can still have an open dialogue and, and i think that'll be helpful for both ends right so i mean leading up to these conversations it can often be 
I get nervous, right? And I can imagine other people get nervous too, right? So what is your advice, you know, pre-difficult conversation, what should the individual who's going to give kind of the feedback, what should they be thinking about? Sure. You want to, almost like in baseball, we would visualize different scenarios. So if there's a runner on first base and I'm the shortstop and there's one out in the inning and the count is one in one, there are like four different scenarios that can play out on the next pitch that I need to be prepared for. And if I'm not, then I'm probably going to be out of position. I'm letting my team down, so on and so forth. Right. So it's almost like you need to visualize the different outcomes of having that conversation. It can go really well. It can go badly. It can go somewhere in between that. You want to be prepared for any type of reaction from the person that you're delivering that news to. Right. So that, that's probably the, the first thing that you want to do. The, the other thing that you want is to try to limit the emotion from mm-hmm. it because that's where you're going to get tangled up. If, if it's something that's super emotional, and there's nothing wrong with being an emotional person, but your emotions can sometimes cloud your ability to, to have a direct conversation with somebody. And you might snap and say something that you wish you hadn't said. So <laughs> I would say those are those are probably the two biggest things that you, you should just pump yourself up or prep yourself for is say like, okay, what are the different scenarios? What are the different outcomes? And how will I react in each situation? And depending on what your relationship is with this person, how can I prepare for the emotional impact that this conversation might have? Yeah, it's, that's great advice. And I think it was, I mean, you, we, we uh, chatted about emotional intelligence earlier, and I think it was Daniel Goleman. He's like the godfather of emotional intelligence. And he, you know, he taught, I think it was him who said this. It's like, when our emotions go up, our intellect goes down. And I yes. think you just, you said that perfectly, right? And it's the same in sports, right? You let your emotions get the best of you. Like you might not be mm-hmm. thinking about the next play. You might be thinking about, you know, the ball you just hit into the net or, you know, the, the basketball you just, you just miss, right? So it's sure. uh, pretty interesting to kind of think about it that way and to turn the dial down on your emotions. So if you're the individual on the receiving end of a difficult conversation, again, how should you think about that? <laughs> well, <laughs> so th- this can go, I, f- I feel like this is arguably the, the harder because you wouldn't, th- you don't necessarily know going into the conversation that you're about to have a difficult conversation. Right. You may be aware, like maybe, you know, your numbers are down or you've been struggling with this and that and your boss calls you in and you're thinking, okay, this, this is probably what they want to talk about in some cases it may be a relief you may be like okay this is my opportunity to ask for help or figure out what it is I'm doing wrong and how I can turn it around in some cases it might be nervous well it's always going to be nervousness but like that extra anxiety of like am I going to get fired am I going to get let go today so (laughs) I'd almost like from uh, the receptive side of it, I'd almost not want to know that the meeting was happening. <laughs> and <laughs> because, because the anxiety that would build up if, if I knew I was doing something wrong, right, 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 right. <laughs> or, or if I was struggling. But again, I think you need to prepare in a lot of the same ways, regardless of if you have some type of warning, like if your boss puts a meeting on your calendar, or if they just call you into the office. I think you just need to, and that's part of being a professional, right? Like that's part of 
just being an adult and growing up is being able to control your emotions and being able to communicate with other people. So maybe you weren't prepared for this, but does it make sense for you to go off and call your boss all these different names and tell them that they're wrong or even worse, just shake your head, walk out of that meeting and then talk smack to all your coworkers? That's probably not the best approach to what is trying to be accomplished like by having that difficult conversation. So I think it's definitely the more difficult of the two, like if you had to place a degree of difficulty on them, but if you're going to have a difficult conversation and you have to be the one who's receiving the news, it's just important to remember that you can't let your emotions get the best of you either. You want to try and have some open dialogue and don't be afraid. So much like I said, leaders should let the person they know that they want to have an open dialogue. If that leader doesn't do that, like maybe they haven't been coached on that before. They just don't know to say that. And you get that difficult conversation. You get that difficult news. It's okay for you to ask your boss or to ask your coach and say, Hey, can, it, can I talk to you about this when I've had a little bit more time to process it? I want to try and fix some things and work through it. Can we, talk about this again two weeks from now like put a meeting on the calendar and see what see how i've progressed since then like feel free to extend that invitation if you if they don't extend the invitation for you and if they're receptive to it then then you have a good leader if they're not then i don't know maybe maybe you want to go find somewhere else (laughs) right (laughs) and that's such a good point and i think like it also depends on the culture at work, right? If it's mm. if it's the norm that you exchange feedback with your coworkers and that's just something that happens, then maybe these conversations you can kind of expect them more often than not. And I think that's kind of a cool segue into, you know, from your experience, how do you craft a healthy workplace culture? What does that look like to you? Yeah. So this is where I probably had the biggest learning curve like when I got out of college and got into HR and recruiting, I didn't know anything about what a quote unquote culture looked like and what you wanted to be a part of. And I think some of the the basic elements that you need for a culture that is successful and happy is you need a culture that's inclusive. You need a diverse culture. That's something that I'm really big on. And you need the culture to, again, what we were talking about with some of the leadership qualities earlier in the conversation, you need to have the culture be about more than just the bottom line. Mm -hmm. So in the corporate world, a lot of times we get lost in money and in sports, a lot of times we get lost in wins and losses, no pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) But So being able to connect to something that's a little bit larger than the bottom line is going to be another important aspect of just the overall culture as well. Right. And, and again, I, a lot of times I'll bring that back to community and there's, there's so many great organizations and there's so many great people, no matter where you live, that you can support and that you can help. And I just think it's, it's really, that's, that's like the easiest thing that you can do. So you you should, that should be your first step. And then those other elements that I mentioned, surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Don't be afraid to do that. They're only going to lift you up. 
those those are probably the biggest elements to, right. you know, uh, those four different things right there right now so you mentioned community a couple times and mm-hmm. you know i think i know baseball has had a big influence on you so kind of tell us you know what did baseball do for you and how did it influence your development and kind of where you are today <laughs> <laughs> So baseball is a humbling sport, <laughs> to put it lightly. I I was, uh, so I'll just kind of go through as quick as I can. Yeah. I was a pretty successful baseball player before a lot of my friends and my teammates were. I developed from a physical standpoint, which is ironic because I'm fairly short now compared <laughs> to most other people, but I developed physically much faster than a lot of my peers did. Plus, and I was talking about this with my wife the other day, I just wanted it more. I I loved baseball. Like I breathed it, I lived it every single day. I was interested in the science behind it. I was interested in practicing as much as I could. And I had a a really strong three-year stretch where I was one of, if not the best player on the field at all times. Like there was no question in my mind. There was no question in coaches' minds. It was just one of those aspects of, wow, like maybe I'll be able to play this game at the next level. Wow, wow. <laughs> and so there, there's like two really formative moments in my athletic career that really helped shape like my development and who I am. The first was prior to me taking off those three years. I was, I was really struggling. Like I said, I was, I've always been smaller than most of the people around me and I was struggling. It was the last year of little league actually. So 12 years old and I was the leadoff hitter. I was pretty quick and, and it was, it was just bad. And I was like thinking to myself, am I, am I going to be able to play at the next level? Like, is this the last year that I'm going to be playing baseball, the sport that I love. And one of the biggest moments in my life was my head coach coming up to me and saying that I was his leadoff hitter no matter what. Wow. Like that confidence that he instilled into me by just having that conversation when he could clearly see that I was struggling and really being difficult on myself. That was that was something also that I've had to work on. That's a separate conversation. But right. that was a really formative moment that propelled me for those next three seasons. So I get to high school and I get called up early to the JV team. I'm being fast-tracked essentially to varsity. I move positions so there's this open spot and and I can get up and play. Long story short, I I struggle pretty badly again. And by my 10th grade season, I had a freshman who had leaped over me and made it to varsity. He later went on to play professionally, so wow. he, he was really good. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but um, it was it was a really difficult moment, and I came to a crossroads where my junior year, I had made varsity, but I also had the choice to play JV. And the head coach of the varsity team told me if I came up to varsity, I would barely play. I would be that role player that I was talking about earlier right. in our conversation. But if I played at JV, I'd have a chance to play every single day. I could get called up at any point during the season if they needed me, if there was an injury, somebody was struggling, et cetera. I chose the more difficult path because I was a stubborn 16-year-old and I <laughs> probably thought I was I was better than I was. We've all been there. And um, <laughs> Yeah. 
Well, honestly, it ended up being the best decision that I ever could have made. We had a great season in terms of like team perspective. We won sectionals and we got within, I think, a strike twice of being in the final four of states that year in the state wow. of New York. Yeah, so really successful season. As head coach predicted, I played maybe a total of nine innings, maybe got a total of nine or ten at-bats. It was very limited. I, I pinch ran every once in a while. Um, I did have some – I hit a three-run home run in my first start when the kid who hopped over me was pitching, so I got to start for him. That's basically what I was there for. Right. Whenever he was pitching, I would play shortstop. Right. Otherwise, I was on the bench yeah. unless we needed a pinch runner. And after the season was over, we had exit meetings. And this is the, the second formative moment. We had exit meetings, and my coach said to me, he said, I've never had a player, and I think he had been coaching. He had been the head coach there probably 10 years, a little over 10 years, and he had been coaching probably another handful, maybe another 10 years. And he said he had never had a player who played his role better than I did that season wow. and as difficult as that was from a personal standpoint knowing that I was sitting the bench and that I wasn't getting an opportunity to play and that it was probably affecting my college outlook when he said that to me it it flipped like my whole perspective on what baseball meant to me flipped wow and I realized like how impactful what I was doing when I was when I was on bench cheering my teammates on when I was going out to, to warm up the pitcher when the catcher wasn't ready yet, when I was basically doing anything I could to just be active and feel like I was part of the team right? and contribute when I actually got those, those few moments when I was called upon, I was one of the best role players that my coach had ever seen, if not the best. I, I can't remember the exact words, but it was something along those lines. That's amazing. And, and yeah, it, it was just really cool from a, a – very difficult season personally but obviously a very successful team season and just to be able to reflect on that now more than 12 13 years ago and know that that's what leadership is like that is that is being (laughs) yeah yeah, it's it's and, and that's again leaders for the most part usually aren't the best players on the team it's it's almost like it's almost like somebody who's in a very high level executive position in a company, if they're not like the CEO, who's like the face of the company per se, they have so many responsibilities and things that they need to do that it's really difficult for them to quote unquote lead. Like it's just how it is. And and with the best players on the team, if you need them to carry you like in, in the sense of a baseball standpoint, then it's probably not in our best interest for them to be the leaders anyways. Like even if they wanted to do something like that, it's probably just too much on their plate. So that, that was definitely going through like the severe highs and the severe lows of a baseball, amateur baseball career and coming out the other side, like I did was really the, the genesis of my development and really where I got passionate about, the leadership aspect of everything. Like I said, the culture stuff didn't really happen until after I got out of college and I got into HR and recruiting, but that was really the start of it all. Right. But you can see that, you know, you can see how you're thinking about leadership. You can see that kind of develop through your experience with baseball. Like it, it's so interesting and it's, 
you know, from your actions, right? You understood what your role was and you took it and you did the absolute best you could to add value to the team. And it sounds like, you know, with Talent 409, you're doing the same thing, right? You're Mm -hmm. helping athletes understand how to be a leader, how to be responsible, what their, how impactful their actions can be regardless of title, right? That's super, super interesting. So, you talk to so many successful athletes on your podcast, Dynamic Leaders. Do you notice any commonalities, you know, between maybe like why these people are so successful and why they flourish? Do you notice anything? Yeah, absolutely. I think number one by far is they are curious people. Hmm. Like they want to understand what's happening, why it's happening, why somebody's doing this. Where did this idea come from? I always equate it to when we're children, we have really great imaginations, we're growing and developing in that sense, like as a physical human being. And then at some point in our adult lives or even maybe in our teenage lives, we have these limiting beliefs about ourselves and we, we really have this fixed mindset. Some people stop it right there and they, they have the self-awareness to grow out of it and to understand that limiting beliefs don't exist uh, unless you think they exist. So those type of people that I bring onto my show, by far, all of them are curious people. They want to understand not only how they can get better, but how they can make the people around them better. And that's why they're leaders. Right. So natu- I, it, it's obviously a little bit of natural curiousness of it all, but there's also that sense of they don't let the grind of life bring them down and say like, Hey, just because I failed here doesn't mean I can't win this time or succeed this time. Like there's gotta be another way. How do I do it? And they don't get stick stuck in that fixed mindset. They have that growth mindset. That growth mindset. So I would say, yeah, that that's by far the, the biggest commonality is they're curious people that usually like to read, usually like to listen to podcasts usually like to immerse themselves around people who are, again, smarter than they are, that can lift them up. Those are some of the aspects that go with being curious that I think are really common amongst the the people that I speak to, at least. That is super interesting. And I think that's a really kind of positive, amazing note to kind of wrap, wrap up this conversation. And I do just have a few more questions. What are your sure. thoughts on happiness? <laughs> Uh, happiness is something that it's, <laughs> it was so funny. I was just having a conversation with somebody <laughs> on my podcast about this oh, no recently. Way. It's one of those things that if you are unhappy somewhere else, like you're own, just because you go someplace else, you, you might not necessarily find the happiness. Like the happiness comes from you. There was a really funny Adam Sandler skit that he did on Saturday night live where he's a vacation host and he's talking to people on screen and he says, come to the, these beautiful islands. But if you are having a divorce and your marriage stinks, it's still going to stink when you're at the island. Right. And, you know, just like, just like saying that just because you leave somewhere doesn't mean like the whole grass is greener type deal. Totally. So happiness is one of those things i think it just comes from you like defining what happiness means for you and not necessarily what it has to mean for the world around you can really help you find that 
happiness. Super. Yeah, totally agree with you. So small kind of incremental things you can do every day to build that happiness habit. And my last question, what are your resources for learning? Right. What are you what are you reading right now? What podcasts are you listening to? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's ever evolving, <laughs> but I will try to narrow it down to a few some of the books that I have recently read, Welcome to Management by Brian Hawk. That's a really good book for people who are looking to transition from individual contributor roles to a leadership position, which is, yeah, most most often is the case, right? Like most often you get really good at what you're doing in individual contributor level, and then you get asked to be a manager and you're leading people, but you haven't managed people a day in your life. So how do you do it? That's a really good resource. For Amazing. It. Okay. Anything uh, else? Some of the books that I, I reread on a pretty consistent basis are Work Rules by Lazo Black. He's the former VP of People Operations at Google. And then Legacy by James Kerr. He followed around the New Zealand All Blacks, a rugby oh, team. Such a good book. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Love it. Yeah. So so much so much fun to read. Yeah. And that, that book in particular is like an easy read too, I say, where you can kind of fly through it and reread it a couple of times, which is why I do it yeah. quite often. Yeah. Uh, from a podcast perspective, that's my other, those are my two main learning resources. I would say podcasts, let's see, uh, The Learning Leader Show with Ryan Hawk. He's also the author of that Welcome to Management book. Okay. Uh, Game Changers by Molly Fletcher. That's a really, really great one too. She brings on a lot of really great women, which is is great too, especially for what I'm doing. Yeah. Oh, let's see. There's so many of them out there. <laughs> Endless, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. So those are those are the two that I listen to on the most consistent basis. Um, sometimes I I get like into some niches here and there where I'm looking for something specific in particular and I, I think that's a good thing to just know about learning too is like just because you listen to something now doesn't mean you need to listen to it forever like find your seasons figure out like what are you trying to develop now what can help you and then move on to the next thing right like you, you don't you don't need a bible per se to to always look back on there can always be different resources and google's a really good thing for that just connecting with like-minded people that uh, are sharing these different resources is a good way. I find a lot of the, those things on social media. So those are a couple of the things off the top of my head. That's amazing. And you know, just to finish it off, who do you admire most and why? Ooh, great question. <laughs> I'm going to go back to what I said to you before we hit record. The person I admire the most, I'm looking up at his poster right now is Bruce Springsteen. Amazing. Bruce Springsteen is a leader of a band, which is a creative outlook, and I believe is probably one of the most single difficult areas to lead, is when you're leading something as creative as, as someone who's creating music for other people. Um, he's had to fire people from his band. He's broken up the band completely to go with a new band and then brought the band back together. He's, he's gone through personal tribulations, a divorce. Uh, he has gone through all of that. And at the same time, he has one of the most dedicated fan bases of any band or any team or any brand that I can think of. Plus, his band is so committed that so they all have solo careers like Conan O'Brien. Um, 
excuse me, Max Weinberg right. was a drummer on Conan O'Brien's show for a, a long time. And it's so funny, like they all will drop what they're doing when he wants to go on tour with the band wow. because that's how compelling he is as a leader. Like they know that as great as the things that they can do as individuals and as much of an impact as, as they've made as individuals, there's nothing greater than when they are together as the E Street Band and they are performing in front of people. Like if you're that compelling to the people that you're leading as well as the people who in this case listen to you, I think that's a pretty strong case for somebody who's <laughs> super influential to me, but it's just a really good really great leader and can be somebody that a lot of people can learn from. I love it. That's amazing. Colin, thank you so much for joining us. You added so much value and um, we'll have you back on soon. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tessa. I appreciate it.